the Art of Leadership Network. Part of my underwhelm with Sunday services is just that I'm, you know, not that far down the spiritual path, but I'm not 25 anymore. Mm-hmm. And sitting through a sermon series on whatever is not as life-changing for me at this point in my journey as it was at that point in my journey. I'm a little bit less emotion-driven now at this point. Mm-hmm. The, the problems I'm facing in my, you know, sin that's in my body are much deeper and are not solved by information and inspiration for the most part. I need, I need I'm way <laughs> too messed up for that. And it's a much, much deeper stuff that it's working, that Jesus is working on in me now. And, um, and then I think part of it, and this is embarrassing, but there is just the American consumer mentality that is the air we breathe. It's like breathing secondhand smoke. I can't help but imbibe the consumerism of our culture. And in a TED Talk, internet-based podcast world, you know, unless if your local preacher is John Tyson or, you know, a couple of years, you know, not that long ago, Tim Keller, it's pretty hard to not be a little bit bored. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Man, this has been a fun series. We have been talking church trends. This is episode five, the final part of our 2024 church trend series. And we kind of gone all over the place. And today, a deep dive into discipleship with the one and only John Mark Comer. Today's episode is brought to you by my 2024 church trends. I've got a leader guide that you can get exclusively for your team for free at 2024churchtrends.com. Make sure you check it out. And by our partner, Subsplash. Growing churches focus on discipleship in our digital world. Your church can be one of them. Go to subsplash.com slash carry and get a $500 credit when you sign up. Well, this episode was a lot of fun. John Mark Comer and I got together at his home just outside of LA, and we talked about the crisis in discipleship, why weekend sermons and services aren't resonating like they used to. And then, of course, in addition to trends, we got into some deep stuff, determining your real motives. Uh, And we talked personally why he's no longer traveling and speaking for the most part, and a whole lot more. John Mark Comer uh, needs no introduction. You love him. He's always one of the top episodes we do every year when he's on. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Live No Lies, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and four other books. Plus, he's got a brand new book coming out now called Practicing the Way. He is the founder and teacher of Practicing the Way. It's a simple, beautiful way to integrate your spiritual formation into your church or small group. Prior to starting Practicing the Way, he spent almost 20 years pastoring Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, and working out discipleship to Jesus in the post-Christian West. He's one of my favorite voices. I so appreciate him. By the way, we also have this on YouTube. So uh, we shot this. This is beautifully shot at his home. So if you want to check that out, I'm just Kerry Newhoff on YouTube as well. So, hey, speaking of church trends, if you haven't done this yet, I know we're five episodes into it, but I've got a complete guide for you. This guide gets used by hundreds of thousands of church leaders every year. We're sharing it, and I would love for you to get the seven trends and insights for your team. You can get them for free at 2024churchtrends.com. That's 2024churchtrends.com to get the seven disruptive church trends that were ruled 2024, and you'll get that team guide for free. We talk about the disappearance of the stable church, uh, the new core of your church being millennials and Gen Z. We also talk about discipleship 
technology. And can I mention AI plus what the new kind of millennial megachurch pastor actually looks like? Uh, Again, get it for free at 2024churchtrends.com. You can get that today and join all the leaders who are going through that with their team as they prepare, well, for an ever-changing sea of ministry. And over the last few years, a lot of churches and certainly pastors have experienced huge disruptions to what you might call business as usual. But did you know that a small percentage of churches are actually growing right now? And what do today's thriving churches have in common? Well, they're focusing on discipleship, and they embrace a hybrid digital reality. So growing churches are leveraging technology to live out the Great Commission. For 18 years, Subsplash has been building the leading digital platform for churches. They've got mobile apps, messaging, websites, streaming, groups, giving, and more, and they want to put it all in your hands. So join the 16,000 other churches who partner with Subsplash to make discipleship in a hybrid reality easy. You can go to subsplash.com slash carry and get a $500 credit when you sign up. That's subsplash.com slash carry. You get a $500 credit when you sign up. Well, this is going to be a rich feast. I am very excited to bring you my conversation with John Mark Comer. Well, John Mark, it's good to be hanging out. Welcome back. It is always great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm fun to finally do this in person. So yes. thanks for having me to your home. It's weird when you feel like you know somebody, but you've never actually like been embodied with them. So 100%. here we are. First yeah. time. Yeah. So last time we talked about this over lunch briefly, you were on, I just had so much feedback on the processing you and I did about what it's like to no longer be the lead pastor. We don't have to rehash that. People can go back to (laughs) processing my freely chosen midlife crisis. It was very healing and therapeutic for me, but I want to know if you've had any other light bulbs, like you've moved since then. So you're in the LA area now. Um, How's the processing going from like, hey, this is who I used to be to this is who I am now? Oh, man. there. I don't know how to summarize that. I think I'm still very much in the liminal space in the world of, you know, in the language of psychology of that in-between. I'm not where I was, but I'm not where I'm going yet. And so the the deck is still getting kind of reshuffled in really good ways. I think I'm through the most painful kind of stripping away of, you know, attachments and stuff like that. And I think now, you know, there's just been a lot gets exposed. You know, one of the really dangerous tricks, I think, when it comes to pastoring is probably more than almost any other job in the world. It is so easy to do the right thing for all the wrong reasons. Yes. I mean, you can, you know, preach the gospel of Jesus and teach the Bible and start churches and call people to discipleship. And actually your motivational structure can be deeply skewed, you know, which is why you have these people that have blown up their pastoral ministries, not for lack of emphasis on Jesus or Mm -hmm. lack of commitment to orthodoxy and the teaching of scripture or lack of discipleship, but through more than just emotional and health, through clearly like an underlying ambition and ego-driven kind of motivational structure. So, you know, the pain and the gift of stepping down is all of that stuff is exposed. And so now that I have a relationship to church that has no tie to my career, my job, my income, you know, how many books I sell, I mean, whatever, my sense of self, it's just, that's gone. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the kind of bare naked truth of my motivational structure is exposed. 
you know, for years, we all love to read Paul and just say, I am just a servant of the church. And that sounds like a beautiful platitude, but you never really know if that's true until it's tested. And I think in my case, and I would imagine this is true of most people, I'm likely a little bit worse than most, but not that much. Um, you know, my motives were mixed at best. And I don't say that in a masochistic way or any kind of guilt or shame. I think just in an honest, like I want Jesus to continue to give me the heart of a servant. And if I'm anything like the disciples in the four gospels, that is a long, slow process. (laughs) Because at the very end, he's still saying to them, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And his last, one of his last teaching lessons is the washing of feet. And I have set you an example. And Man, my heart is so far from that servant heart of Jesus. But um, so yeah, I think it's a process, and mm. uh, but it's been really good. It's stirred up a lot. It's got me thinking a lot about the church. You know, I feel like there are things and perspectives on the church that are much easier to access when your career is not tied to it. And um, so I'm actually thinking probably more about the church right now than I have in years. And um, I find it really stimulating. Yeah, what are you thinking about the church now? You're right, because, I mean, I'm still connected to the church. I founded, I teach there very, very occasionally, but I am thinking about the church a lot. What are you noticing about the church that maybe you didn't notice two years ago when you were still a lead pastor? Um, I think I'm just continuing to develop some of the thinking that has been in my work, and if you want to call it a philosophy of ministry, for a number of years now. I think, you know, without rehashing my whole pastoral life, mm. I was reflecting the other day on my early kind of draw. This would have been, I don't know, 15 years ago, more to what became the missional movement. And I remember reading The Shaping of Things to Come by Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost, which I think every megachurch pastor should read that book, even though it offers pretty much no solution to the problem, but it's a really good critique <laughs> good of the what they would call the attractional church. And I was so drawn to that, you know, growing up in very Sunday-centric large churches and then planting a Sunday-centric large church. Um, I think I got access earlier than most because of just kind of how fast the church grew and how young I was to the weakness of that model. And I'm not Mm -hmm. like a, there is a model of church. Um, I think I love Keller's idea of the gospel ecosystem, that every city needs different sizes of churches and needs mega Mm -hmm. churches and community churches and house churches and neo-monastic communities and Shane Claiborne off doing his thing with, you know, recycling, whatever. And it needs mercy ministries and nonprofits and seminaries and training institutions, and they all work together. Um, my lament is not so much that we have these larger Sunday-centric preaching-based churches or preaching and singing-based churches. It's that that is the dominant model. Mm-hmm. And so many people are all trying to do the same model of church. And I think every model has pros and cons. And I think where people get in, where pastors get into trouble is they're just not honest about the shadow side of their model. I had mm-hmm. a work with an executive coach who does a bunch of kind of Jungian, you know, light and shadow, ego and shadow kind of work. They're really helpful for me. But he introduced me to an idea that is so simple and I still can't get out of my head. That base, And the theory is that basically in the same way that people have in Jung's concept like an ego, which is the self that you kind of 
project to the world, not just in an image management sense. It's often the self we genuinely believe that we are and want to be and aspire to be, but it's not actually who we are. So then we create what, you know, Jung called the shadow, which in his framework isn't so much like the shadow in Enneagram theory where it's all bad. Uh, you know, Jung famously said 90% mm. of the shadow is pure gold. I don't know if I agree with that, but <laughs> by the shadow, he means, you know, all the parts of us that we are unaware of or we refuse to acknowledge. And I think the reason it's so tied to sin is because so much sin comes out of that. Mm-hmm. In a pastoral example, when a, when a pastor, let's just say the pastor is a man, lead pastor is a man, has, you know, unhealed father wounds. There, I mean, the percentage of highly successful men that have horrible relationships with their dad is staggering. I mean, it's so far beyond the, the population, you know, dispersion of the general, the general bell curve. And so that, that unhealed wound often drives us to do really meaningful things, but then that very thing that made us successful can turn us into a failure. So if you're not aware of that and in mm-hmm. tune with it and, and, you know, giving attention to it with Christ and community, then that shadow is often where sin comes out of, you know, and that's just one common trope almost. So I think um, the, the new idea for me was that in the same way that people have an ego and a shadow, organizations have an ego and a shadow. Oh, wow. And so this was so helpful for me. I was introduced to this idea when I was at Bridgetown and I had our whole, our elders and our staff all like spend um, several hours trying to pray and reflect and discern what's the shadow of our organization and the shadow of our church. Like we know what the ego is, like go to our website. Here's our vision, here's our branding, (laughs) here's our mission statement, here's our strategy, here's our preaching, but what's our shadow? And uh, so I think, the danger, back to thinking about church, when pastors are lack in honesty, and often you know, we feel this pressure to kind of sell our model of church, which I think we need to curb that enthusiasm. But often when we don't acknowledge the shadow or the cons to our model, that's a major problem. And I just, I, I, again, I don't think there is a model of church or a size of church. I have convictions that I think you know, would make me really uncomfortable in certain models of church and much happier in others. But um, my basic contention is I think we need more models of church, a larger pastoral imagination beyond just mega churches and house churches or whatever. And, um, and I continue to believe that because my beating heart is for formation, community, the relational transformation of the soul into people of love like Jesus. Um, my conviction based on all sorts of data and research is that that primarily happens relationally through smaller contexts. Mm. And so, you know, there's lots of different theories. Dunbar's is the one I use yeah. who kind of uses the four levels of community based on grouping size. And his first two layers are your one to five intimates which is part of the tragedy of loneliness because, you know, most Americans have no intimates right Mm -hmm. now. It's Mm -hmm. it's just like a new historical phenomenon. This would be your wife if you're married or your spouse or your therapist or your best friend or your two buddies from college that like you've been with for 20 years. It's the people that actually know you as you are and they know your shadow. The next round would be like 
you know, Dunbar's theory, it's about 12 to 15. Other people put the number as high as 30, but it's your friends. This is mm-hmm. your community, the people you do the one another's of the New Testament with, your life, you do life together around a table with. Then he's famous for his 150 number, which is the, you know. So that's where you max out. Yes, oh, yes. And Personal at that point, at a church level, once a church goes over 150, the group psychology changes from kind of community to crowd. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because then there's this fourth layer of like, you can call it whatever you want. I like the word tribe in the positive sense. Like it's really meaningful and important to feel like you're a part of a larger body of people that has this vision and mission and values and ethos and culture. And all four levels are important, but it's those first two levels, you know, your one to five intimates and your 12 to 15 or so friends where based on what my understanding, um, the deepest levels of growth, healing, change, transformation all happen in those two spaces. So I think the older I get, I've just been on the same trajectory of I'm less and less, um, I am underwhelmed by Sunday services, even though I still have a high theology of preaching, but I am just very underwhelmed by them. And I am more and more with every passing year and not as a theoretician, as a practitioner, and I'm very far past the honeymoon stage. I know how hard it is, but I am more and more convinced that the future of the church is smaller. It's around tables, not stages. It's relational, it's formational, it's prayer-based. And I think those convictions now being on the receiving end of the church um, and not having my ego tied in with that mm-hmm. Sunday service, mm-hmm. you know, because as a general rule, pastors all want bigger churches and people all yep. want smaller ones. And that's not true across the board, you know, because um, often there are things that come with larger churches that people really want. Uh, but I think as a general rule, <laughs> that's true. And having my kind of job disconnected from that has been really good for me to kind of, I think, open my mind to maybe more honestly consider. What is underwhelming about Sundays, because I, I, I think there's something about that. And I've noticed the older I get, John Mark, like it's like, it's kind of like if I put all my happiness, so Dunbar's number, really interesting theory. And I think, I think this is, Tim Keller used to write about this, but I think it comes from a Jewish theologian. With the death of the church, the death of God in our culture. You know, it's sort of, if you look at the Instagram wedding, I mean, when I got married, wedding wasn't that expensive. It wasn't this yes. big production. We had a photographer, but it was kind of a, it was a specialized, but like not a boilerplate wedding, but there just wasn't all the pressure. Now you've got like, I read the other day, bachelor parties now cost on average, I think it's 10 or $15,000 for the bachelor party, plus the wedding, plus it has to be Instagram perfect. Plus, and you know, the, the theology under that, as Keller would say, is your wedding and your spouse is not designed to bear that. Like you, you need to worship God. Your relationship has to be bigger than that. But the, the pageantry and the ceremony of what used to be church and majesty and God and life and right order is now wow. has gone into, into your relationship. And no mm. wonder people crumble under that. Yeah. I wonder if we've done a similar thing way. with Sunday services. Mm, you know, if you think about all the freight that Sunday morning has to bear. Like if it really is, okay, I read my Bible for five minutes a day, said a quick prayer while I was driving to work and now I'm going to Sunday, which I only catch once or twice a month anyway, by the way. Is it that or what else is underwhelming about Sunday morning? Hmm. I think some of it is stage-based. So this is, I'm just gonna, this is really probably unwise to talk about theories. We can cut it or we can go. On a podcast, I will let you decide if it's helpful or not. 
Um, and I just, you know, I, I'm pretty sensitive to people that critique based on theory, but don't offer solutions hey, but we were that also are as good or better. I mean, we're not sitting back going at other people. So, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, throw away your Sunday gatherings. Yeah, yeah. I just, and I, what I've been saying about Sunday gatherings is nothing new. I've been saying it for many years, but um, I think some of it is stage-based. So uh, I'm really interested in what in the secular world we call developmental psychology, what Christians would call stage theory. Mm-hmm. And there, obviously that's a polarizing concept. Are there stages to spiritual formation, to Christian development over time? And how do they map onto or sync up with just the natural human life stages of adulthood and adolescence and midlife and old age? And so some people are really resistant to any attempt at spiritual cartography to kind of map the spiritual journey. I think with all sorts of disclaimers, I'm generally a fan because I just think anything, mm. anything that aids self-awareness, whether it's a personality theory like the Myers-Briggs or a stage theory about where you're at in life, anything that is helpful to get at access to our shadow, I think is helpful in the spiritual journey. It's helpful to open up deeper and deeper places of us to grace. And that in my meta level, 30,000 foot, that's basically my view of formation is the driving, the central question of discipleship is how do we open up deeper and deeper parts of ourself to the work of the Holy Spirit, to, hmm. to grace, to transformation, because we can't do it. So how do we open up the broken parts of ourselves, the wounded parts of ourselves to him? Um, so I think uh, stage theory is really interesting to me. There's a bunch of different great ones. They're all theories. None of them are capital T truth. None of them are chapter and verse. None of them are empirically verifi- verifiable. But there's a lot that I think ring pretty true. And there's one I really like out of Fuller Seminary, The Critical Journey. I would imagine you're familiar with that. No, I don't know that. Uh, Professors Janet Hagberg, I think, and Michael Gulick. So there is a book. It's called The Critical Journey. I did a teaching on it many years ago. You can find that's a popular version of it. And they basically break the spiritual journey into six stages. We don't need to go through those. But at the end, they argue that these stages are not inevitable, that most Christians in America never mature beyond stage three. Hmm. So the first three stages are uh, stage one is that they call it recognition of God. Uh, Ancient Christians would call it awakening. Evangelicals would call it getting saved. Um, Stage two, they call the life of discipleship. They don't mean discipleship as I would use that word, but they mean like basic kind of discipleship to Jesus, learning to Mm -hmm. read your Bible, go to church, be in a small group, learning basic Christian doctrine. And then stage three is what they call the productive life. So you become, you produce, you, be, you do things for Jesus now. Mm-hmm. You lead a small group or you lead a missions team or you join the board at your church or you become a deacon or you, you know, become a youth pastor or you're doing something or you're taking your work seriously as a follower of Jesus. All beautiful things. And, but that's just the first half of the spiritual journey. All that to say, I think that Sunday-based churches are pretty helpful for people in those first three stages and increasingly unhelpful after that, which is why you have this tragic phenomenon where a lot of the people that have the deepest appetite for psycho-spiritual development, they want to psychologically mature and they want to spiritually mature, often the enemies at work in all of our hearts feel the need, let's just set aside whether it's legitimate or wildly illegitimate, feel the need to step out of Sunday-based churches and almost graduate from that in Mm -hmm. order to continue the spiritual journey. And um, 
I think their blame can be placed on both sides. You know, on one hand, you could say that's just narcissism eating you up now that you're not getting what you used to when you were 24 and you're hearing a sermon series or whatever, and you're like, oh my gosh, I never had any idea. Now you're 44 and you're like, I've heard this sermon series nine times and it's not helping me fix my- And I've led this group Wayward teenager or my Mm -hmm. broken marriage or my addiction Mm -hmm. to whatever, or my pain from my childhood. And so then they move on, which is often just a way to deepen narcissism. I'm not saying it's wrong always to do that, but rather than liberate your heart from it. But on the church side, we often, most churches often offer no discipleship pathway past that third stage. So it's basically, most churches do evangelism pretty well. They do basic discipleship pretty well. And then they invite people into leadership. Be a, be, lead a small group, volunteer, lead this team, do our thing. And then that's where the vision of human maturity, spiritual maturity tends to end. Mm. And so like, I think a good thought exercise for pastors is imagine all of your core leaders, like at Bridgetown, we had about 150 people. We had a lot of really good core leaders that were all leading home communities for us, leading ministries on staff, in eldership, on our board of directors, I think a great question to ask is um, what's, and Tyler Staten just did this recently with a group of leaders, what's your vision for them 10 years from now? Mm-hmm. Like, what's your dream? If they stay in leadership at your, not your community, but the community you serve and shepherd, What's your dream? What's your vision? And is there any intentional pathway to see that vision become a reality for them 10, 15, 20 years from now? Or is it just, I need them to lead and by leading, they will grow. And the reality is by leading, they may grow. Leadership, I think, offers us access to our shadow. It exposes all the things that are wrong with us. Mm -hmm. So it gives us the chance to grow, but leadership may just as well mess people up. Like a lot of people lead and they just get bitter, cynical, burned out, turned off. So it's not like a surefire recipe. So I think um, part of my underwhelm with Sunday services is just that I'm, you know, not that far down the spiritual path, but I'm not 25 anymore. Mm -hmm. And sitting through a sermon series on whatever is not as life-changing for me at this point in my journey as it was at that point in my journey. I'm a little bit less emotion-driven now at this point. Mm-hmm. The, the problems I'm facing in my you know, sin that's in my body are much deeper and are not solved by information and inspiration for the most part. I need, I need I'm <laughs> way too messed up for that. And it's a much, much deeper stuff that it's working, that Jesus is working on in me now. And, um, and then I think part of it, and this is embarrassing, but there is just the American consumer mentality that is the air we breathe. It's like breathing secondhand smoke. I can't help but imbibe the consumerism of our culture. And in a TED Talk, internet-based podcast world, you know, unless if your local preacher is John Tyson or, you know, a couple of years, you know, not that long ago, Tim Keller, it's pretty hard to not be a little bit bored. You know, and that's just the hard truth. In a pre-recording era, you weren't used to hearing Spurgeon every week. You would just hear your local preacher. Mm -hmm. And now we're used to Netflix and Hulu and podcasting the best preachers in the world. And that makes it a little harder to sit still for 45 minutes and listen to a good local pastor, you know, but who's not that. Okay, I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think about it, I process it, John Mark, 
through the lens of what I think of as the new scarcity. So you're exactly mm. right. Spurgeon was scarce. I mean, maybe you read his sermons printed up yep. in a newspaper yep. or you happen to be in a city. He's in the pulpit. You get to hear him once in a lifetime if you're out of town. But information was scarce, which is why three-point charges, right, which I started at from the 19th century. What's you that? do the circuit what's on Sunday three, morning. What's a three-point charge? That's what we call it. United Methodists would know it. Presbyterians would know it. So you can't afford a full pastor as an independent church. So you just go from among three churches on a Sunday oh, morning right. yes. and deliver the message. Like the Methodist kind of. Like almost. the Methodist. Yeah. yeah. You do the circuit, right? So it's, it's, it's scarce because if where else are you going to hear the word of God proclaimed? 20th century changed that a little bit with television and mm-hmm. the whole deal and Billy Graham and Absolutely. Charles Stanley and you yep. know Joyce Meyer, et cetera. But then 21st century comes along in the last decade, genie's out of the bottle. Information is everywhere. That world is gone. And, you know, what you said too, because as, as you were reflecting earlier on the model of church, and, you know, I led an attractional church for many years, and God really used it, I think, in, in very, very powerful ways. Yeah. But we were able to copy from each other rather than here's the fourfold pattern of worship handed down over the centuries. It's like, oh, I like what these people are doing over here in Portland or New York or Vancouver or wherever you happen to be. You're taking notes. You're like, we can, we can do that faster. We can, now, we can now start to look like some of the things we've seen. And then the internet just exploded it. But that's also true. Like, I'm not going to be as good as Tim Keller. I'm not going to teach discipleship the way you can teach discipleship and the way you can preach it. So we find ourselves becoming almost imitations of ourselves yeah. rather than going deep. Mm. So all that to say, you know, I think the shadow side of that for me is there's, there was some originality, but there was also some copycat. And it leaves you to the point where you're like, is this as good as it gets? You know, to quote that old movie with Jack Nicholson, is this really as good as it gets? Is this all there is? <laughs> but there are other stages as well. Yeah. So what is beyond that? What is beyond it for the church? Beyond? Beyond the, the first three stages, which most of us don't get past. Um, I mean, in the critical journey, they name the next couple of stages. Um, in their theory, you hit this, not a stage, but an experience that, you know, and they lay, like, it's not this linear. And they would say over and over again, life is not this linear. And we mature unevenly. We might sure. be ahead in one stage in one aspect of our life and behind in another. But they have this concept they call the wall, which is some kind of an experience. I think of the AA line, the only way out is through. Meaning it's some kind of an experience of pain and suffering that you can't bypass or deny or fake it till you make it. It's something that will permanently stand in your path. It could be a divorce. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be failure, bankruptcy. It could be a terminal disease or a chronic illness, any number of things, but there's no way around it. The only way out is through. And so you can either stop in your spiritual journey or regress in your spiritual journey Mm -hmm. Um, which is what a lot of people do, like the phenomenon of deconstruction. One way to think about that psychologically is people go through the first three stages of Christian spiritual development. They hit the wall. They have some kind of experience of pain and suffering. And rather than go through it, they jump ship to another, I'll just use the word religious system. And I don't mean, I mean that in the more Keller sense of like a system of beliefs, ideas, values, practices that give meaning and purpose to life. Um, that could be the three most common that I saw in Portland were third wave anti-racism, all things LGBTQ and pride and kind of um, ally kind of 
worldview, activist worldview, and then careerism, kind mm-hmm. of a, like work is God. Those are the three most common alternative religions that I saw in Portland. So people jump ship and then they go back and they start at phase one again. It's awakening, but now it's a different religion. And so it's like they're born again and they're just on a high and they're in this honeymoon phase and I can't believe and I never saw before and I never realized this and I was blind and I was dumb and I was lost and I've been saved. It's basically a salvation motif. And then they become a life of discipleship. Then they're learning and they're reading and they're and they're taking all of this information in and then the productive life. Then they're doing things and they're leading things and they're saying things. And it's just inevitable that people will hit the wall again. Mm. And then what? So in the critical journeys, um, the next stage is if you go through the wall, you go into stage four that they call the inner journey or the journey inward, which would be basically like the the valley, you know Mm. what I mean? Or the wilderness, this period often marked by a lot of soul searching and millennial language. You do the work often of therapy around family of origin and your relationship to your parents and your culture and your shadow and your personality and your Enneagram number, all that stuff. Um, it's a good space for that. Then stage five is what they call the journey outward. So you go through that. And again, if you continue to mature and people get stuck at every single one of these phases, there's some people that go into therapy and the deep work. And then 20 years later, they're still just- Still in the deep work. Bemoaning. Yeah, still stuck. Still, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. And that's important work to Mm -hmm. do, Mm -hmm. but you don't want to get stuck there. You need to move through it, not through it that like we're some problem to solve or some formula that you hack and fix. The human soul is way more complex than that. And I don't mean that in an unkind way at all. Just I think most people would agree there is a season, you know, see it a lot when people start therapy. It's like it often gets worse before it gets better. And they just, every conversation you had with, have with them is just very negative. And that is actually, I think, a healthy part of almost like getting the impurities out of your system. It's almost like a charcoal cleanse of your body. But you don't want to be there for the rest of your life. You mm-hmm. want to move through that to a place of greater acceptance, gratitude, joy, seeing the good and the bad in your experience, in your family, and your parents, and all of that. And so then you go to the journey outward, which is where you kind of begin to reemerge almost into, it looks very similar to stage three, the productive life. You're out doing things now again. You're leading often. You're serving. You're making a contribution through your church or ministry or work. But it's so from the outside, it looks very similar to stage three, but it's very different because your motivational structure is radically different. You are now, you don't need, uh, you don't need what you used to need from success. You know, there's that Rollheiser line, success still feels good in the second half of life, but it has very little to teach us. Meaning past that stage, we're learning way more from our failure. We learn a lot from our successes early on because they tell us what we should do with our life. If if you have the the favor and the grace to be successful at anything at a young age, it's almost like a high five, like you're on the right track from life and God and community, like keep going this direction. So success is very helpful. Not all of us have that gift, but very helpful in the first half. And in the second half, it's great. But yeah, better success than not. Yes. But it doesn't own you anymore. So I have a book coming out. Feel like if it. this book were to sell a million copies, that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. It is not going to help me be a better husband, wife. It's not going to deal with my anxiety. It's not going to free my heart from it. It might make some of those problems way worse. So, and I already know that I want to write with my life. That I So it was really, it was helpful to have that a little bit early on because mm-hmm. it was a sign mm-hmm. like, hey, you should write. But now I kind of know that I should write. 
So now I don't want the book to flop, but it would probably have a better effect on my godliness <laughs> if this word thing were to sell three copies, you know? Uh-huh. I've I don't knock on wood. I don't, I'm not saying I want that. I'm not asking for that. But um, so stage five, you're doing meaningful work, but you are different. Your motivational mm. structure is different. You're more free. You're more detached. You're not like pure love, but you're more motivated by love. And then stage six is what they call the life of love. And this is just, I mean, most people we know in this stage are very old, but I know some people there and they are just, they just exude the love of the Trinity. And just the gift is just being in their presence. It's not even their, if it's a pastoral example, it's not their leadership. Most of them aren't leading actively anymore. It's not necessarily their preaching or teaching or writing, though it might be just dripping with wisdom. It's them. Like I remember visiting Eugene Peterson. I was one of the last pastor groups that Mm. got to visit him. And, you know, and he was nearing the end. You could tell he was very elderly at that point. You could tell his body was starting to slowly kind of wind down. But I mean, he just, it was like, we always said to each other, it's like being in the presence of a saint. And he didn't say anything that we'd not read in his books. So it was not like we were taking- You're getting the last unpublished thoughts. Honestly, every single thing he said we'd read before. And, um, you know, some of it was kind of boring, but just like being in his presence was just like the peace, the love, the sense of like union with God. You could almost like, it permeated the room. So, you know, that's, that's the final stage. So that's, I think, in their theory, again, this is all theory. This is not capital T truth. Um, but in their theory, those are kind of the next stages that come. And I think as a general rule, the first half, the first three stages are more linear. Mm -hmm. And the last three stages are not linear at all. Mm -hmm. So if you were to draw it out, it wouldn't be a straight line, but it'd be more of just a a slow kind of windy line through those first three stages. And then, you know, by stages four and five, it would just be a hornet's, a bird's nest. You know what I mean? Of just forward, backward. We often feel like we're regressing, not progressing. We're breaking down, not breaking through, you know? And we're in the wilderness, not in the promised land. And those often are the seasons in the second half of life where where we grow the most. And often we don't even realize it because we're so aware that we're not in control of our formation. And those first stages, I feel like our spiritual formation, our discipleship, we feel a little bit more in control of them. Mm. And in the second stage, second stages, you know, we become becomes much clearer to us that we are absolutely not in control of our mm-hmm. formation. And God's grace is targeting us at the areas that we are most desperately in need of it. And often in the areas that we don't even want it. We're like, don't touch that in me, God. Leave <laughs> it alone. Don't make this book a flop. Or it's okay. too painful. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, that, I'm sure that would be good for me to be free of the need for a successful book, but the, co- the pain would be too deep. I'm okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And thankfully, you know, at this point, hopefully our heart has been given over deeply enough to Jesus that he's able to come in and do things um, not against our will, because I don't think that's how God works, but he's able to tap into our deeper will of surrender. Did you have a wall, like a definitive wall that kind of moved you from those first three stages going, there's got to be something more? Oh yeah, I've had multiple. Okay. How much time do you have? Yeah, we, have I, we have all day. I mean, I've, great. Had, yeah. I've had multiple. Yeah. Do you want to talk about one? I mean, um, for me, it was burnout. 
And I'm not saying it hasn't been since then. That was 18 years ago, 17 years ago. Yeah. But like that, that is a clear before and after moment in my life. And so much as you were going through the different stages, so much of that resonated with me because I did the deconstruction. I remember when my counselor said to me, whatever that was stage four, I guess, or five. And I remember the moment I was, I was in his office, in his house, in his basement. And he said to me, right now you're in the pit of deconstruction. We're going to do some reconstruction, but some people never see that. They get stuck here and you won't. And I'm like, that's terrifying because I was in a horrible place. And, you know, we do see the light of day and you're right. Like success. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not ambitious. I'm not saying my motives are pure because they're not. I wrestle with them every day. But like, it's different. Success just doesn't feel, it doesn't, doesn't have its talons in me like it used to. And I think on, on some days, yeah, it still does. And there's something I probably need to apologize for later today that I said to somebody. It's yeah. like, all right, here we are again, old Carrie. Yep. Get up there and do that. But what would, what would a wall have been for you? Yeah, I mean, the same one of burnout, which for me was tied. And it's interesting, you're never the same after. Like, I still uh-huh. don't have the energy that I had back. I've never recaptured it. And um, so, and that one for me, which was a number of years ago now, was tied to my failure as, I mean, maybe failure is too strong of a word. I don't think so. Um, but as a, Mega church pastor because there and the short version of that story was you know we were this kind of multi-site mega church that I resigned from mm-hmm. not out of any scandal or anything but I, I was thirty years old and we had I think ninety three people on staff and I just was probably two decades away from being mature enough to handle that and probably about three personalities away from being ever good at that. Uh-huh. And um, so that was a real wall in my ecclesiology, my, you know, my view of church and my um, kind of dream for my life. Another one was um, just my marriage. And uh, my wife was chronically ill for 15 years and some of them very severe. And um, that was one of those, like, there's no way around it. You know, we've seen every doctor. We've spent thousands and thousands of dollars. We've been prayed for so many times. And it was just really bad. And there was no, I was never going to have anything even close to approximating the marriage that I thought I was saying yes to on my wedding day. And there's a long story there. She's since been miraculously healed two years ago very unexpectedly, but after a long time of, you know, 15 years, not a short period of time. Because I know you've, you've told a little bit of that story before, and John Thompson, mutual friend, yeah. right, was involved in that. He's got a book called Deliverance, which, yeah, it's great. which is about that. But how did, you, how did you come to terms with that? Because I think there's a lot of people, whether it's a marriage that isn't working out the way you hoped, or that is still limping, or a church that you had great hope for yeah, and you're not called away but or, your ministry yeah. is just stuck like what went on inside you to help you through those days where you didn't know it was gonna get mm. well i mean i think it's a good question because it's a question of when not if like life will serve you up the wall so it may be your marriage, it may be your ministry, it may be something entirely different. It may be your children, it may be your family, it may be anything, the sector of the economy that you work in that goes away. But it's only a question of time. And so I think um, 
whatever the example is, marriage or ministry or whatever, I think it's a really good question to ask. I wish I had some like alliterating three bullet points, <laughs> you know, but prayer. And I was just, it's the simple, it's funny how like, I, I'm always resistant when people are like, life is simple. Like following Jesus is simple. I'm like, life is anything but simple. Life is like extraordinarily complex. Why I hate ideology on both the left and the right. It's why I often can't stand a lot of Christian preaching. It makes, it's not honest about how difficult and complex life is. It's why I love literature because it is honest about how difficult and complex life is. And it's why I wish preaching was a little bit more like literature because the Bible is a lot. The Bible is literature. It's not commercial. The Bible does not read like a Marvel movie. It reads, I remember reading James Bell's plot and structure where he's a screenwriter in Hollywood and he had these two kind of a commercial plot line versus a literary plot line. And he kind of graphs them out. And this is what a commercial plot line looks like. And every action movie you've mm. ever seen, it's, you know, kind of looks like a stock market. Like it's rising action up and to the right and then kind of knockout ending and whatever. And then they show the literary plot line. And it's this just kind of very ambiguous up and down and depressive. And at the end, it's either a hopeful ending or an ambiguous ending. And I just remember thinking, oh, that made so much sense of the Bible for me. First time I ever read Steinbeck's East of Eden, I feel like I understood how to read the Old Testament for the first time. And I realized the Bible is normally preached like a commercial plot line, but it's a literary plot line. That's where my mind went. It's like, we're, we're doing commercial plot line sermons every yes. Sunday. And rising tide, action, mm. knockout ending, boom, let's go. And there's a place for that. Like yeah. who, who doesn't want to go see a good action movie once or twice a year? But life... I don't, very few people feel like Thor when they're like mm. going through, maybe Thor's bad phase when he was like overweight. <laughs> <laughs> Beer belly Thor. Um, we can relate to that Thor, but um, most of us don't feel that way. And so, I mean, so many of the stories in scriptures, like all the Old Testament stories about how most of the kings end badly. And then it's like, and Asa was diseased in his feet and then he died. I know. And you're like, wait, <laughs> and you read it twice in Kings and Chronicles. You're like, it's like waiting, and again. Wait, where, wait, where's the where's the ending? Like, what's the point? What's the moral of this story? But yet, how many people have these incredible ministries? Are used so powerfully of God, and then something goes a little wonky in their heart? Not a lot wonky, just a little wonky, and they end kind of a little like weird and off in their heart, and some broken things about their life, and they die. Like, that's real life. So um, I think, <laughs> I think we're straight pretty far from your question at this that's point. That's all right. But um, I think part of the way forward is a greater honesty with hopefulness. And, and the key is how do you, I call it spiritual realism. How do you honestly name the reality of the spiritual journey with hope and not with cynicism? Because there's a lot of utopian idealism or like over-realized eschatology or John Woolman calls it spiritual bypassing, which is a lot of evangelical preaching. And then there's a ton of cynicism, deconstructionism, everybody's horrible. He told you it wasn't going to work. Let's see the worst side of everything. And neither of those are reality. Life is much better and much more not as rosy. It's both. <laughs> And um, life is deeply broken and deeply beautiful at the same time. And maturity is being able to, even psychological maturity is being able to hold those together. And that's very hard. Most people pick a side. So back to your, what's the solution? I don't know what the solution is. I know things that I found incredibly helpful. Um, 
deep, deep relationships. You know, I'm talking about the one to five here and just burying my soul, you know, to people that deeply loved me and I can trust. Um, Therapy was extraordinarily helpful, which is kind of in that same category. But, you know, I had the gift of, have the gift of just a extraordinary therapist, been with for 13 years now or so. And this is this is me in 13 years of therapy. Can you believe that, Carrie? This is this is this That's is amazing. The 13 year of therapy, me. Uh-huh, can you, can uh-huh. you imagine me without it? Oh my gosh, going on your 20. I'm such a mess with it. Um, and uh, prayer, and by prayer, I mean more contemplative um, ways of being with God in prayer and in Scripture. N- not that I think I don't think we ever mature beyond intercession. Certainly not if we read the teachings of Jesus, who said a lot about asking. But I think there's a type of prayer that is less wordy, that is much quieter, that is, feels more like resting than working. It is deeply transformative, you know. Um, I think one of the most important books I've read in a long time is the new work by Dr. Todd Hall out of Rosemead School of Psychology. It's called Relational Spirituality. It's an academic work. He has a popular one out yet. I just ordered it today. I haven't read it called The Connected Life. I have no opinion on it because I haven't read it yet, but... His academic word work, I think, is the most important book written since Willard and Foster, hmm. 30, whatever that was, 40 plus years ago. It's, I think it's a very important contribution to the spiritual formation conversation. And at the end, he has all this, like he's actually found and done studies on what spiritual practices, what forms of Christian spirituality produce deep change in people. Like he's actually, you know, he's found hmm. the people trying to empirically verify through peer-reviewed studies. What has the effect? And you'd have to have him on to get the, the nuanced good version of it. But at the end, he basically says, there are three things that we can point to and we say, we know this produces transformation in people. One is forms of contemplative prayer. And I don't think he necessarily means like um, the Jesus prayer or centering prayer, but just quieter forms of prayer where your mind is deeply contemplating through your imagination and your spirit, who God is, the nature and the person of God. Um, Second is deep, long-term friendships, relationships, the one to five. And third is suffering. (laughs) Okay. That's that's, That's the one you don't want to sign up for, That's the path. You know, contemplative prayer, deep relationships Mm. and suffering. suffering. Which I think if you think about a Sunday service can help those things. They really can. Like it can give framework for that. It can give encouragement for that. If you you're can, willing to do lament from time to it, time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But really like, like that's the path. Wow. And um, so I think that's the stuff. You don't have to give up Sunday services to have deep relationships, pray contemplatively every day and suffer with Jesus. But I think those three, like that's the path you walk. So I don't know, it's, it's probably pretty simple but uh, I think some of those, some of those aspects for me, really, it's you know the whole Rollheiser. And if you've not read, if you read Sacred Fire, Mm-mm. okay, so it's probably in my top three for sure, top okay. ten. I read it every summer. Ron Rollheiser, Catholic. He's actually an academic, but spiritual writer. He's written. He's written. He's writing a trilogy. The third one's not out yet. This is the second book, but you can just read this. Basically, every person over the age of thirty who is following Jesus should read this book. Okay, and it's about kind of discipleship. I think you quote him a lot. Right? I quote him constantly. Yeah, 
And it's about discipleship in what he would call the long middle years of life. Mm. So you're no longer in those early kind of 20 something stages of trying to make a life and a career and get married and have kids and, you know, do your thing. And you're not like elderly and, you know, winding down. You're in those long years. And he, um, he tells this beautiful story from, I think, I think the, it's a Greek novelist. I think you pronounce his name, Kazantakis. I could be wrong <laughs> on that. Who writes about in his memoir, writes about going, he's Greek, writes about going to see an elderly Orthodox monk as a young man and saying, Father Macarius, you know, do you, do you wrestle with God? Do you still wrestle with God? I'm sorry, do you still wrestle? Um, no, I'm sorry. The question is, Father Macarius, do you still wrestle with the devil? And Father Macarius says, no, I have grown too old and he has grown old with me. Then he says, I wrestle with God. And the young man says, you wrestle with God and you hope to win. And he says, no, I hope to lose. <laughs> and I mean, Rollheimer just kind of takes that as like a, a picture in our youth, we're wrestling with the devil, you know what I mean? In the sense where, and, and I think in a symbolic way too, like we're wrestling with these fiery energies of sexuality, ambition, ego, fear, um, and we're trying to conquer them. We're trying to overcome them, you know? It's like the revelation idea, the one John idea to those who overcome. But in the second half of life, really we're more wrestling with God, with his appointment over our life, with how our life is gone, with forgiveness, sadness, disappointment. And we're not trying to win. We're right, no longer right. trying to I'm hoping, get I'm hoping I lose. God to bend our life into the shape we want. We're trying to learn how to live with genuine joy inside the contours of the life we actually have. Not the life we thought we'd have or we wanted to have or we wish we had, but we actually had. How do we, you know... Remember Todd Hunter saying to me once, you must find the goodness of God in your actual life. So I think that's, that's the journey of the second half. It's less about conquering the mountain and more about accepting, you know, um, what was the Merton line? I have mixed feelings on Thomas Merton, but like you said, we spend the first half of our life climbing the ladder of success only to realize it's leaning against the wrong yeah, wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Truth. So I'm, I'm curious, one of the themes so far in this conversation that keeps coming up is motivations. And yeah. it's something that I wrestle with clearly in the second half of life, still on a daily basis. Not me. I'm just pure You're altruism. Pure I altruism. have transcended the ego. I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> no, you know, but like it's different, but it doesn't really go away. And so talking about a book launch, talking about if you were still pastoring, right, this next series going to be the best series, you know, this practicing the way. It's going to be amazing. How do you know you're on the journey with your motivations and not just continually deceiving yourself? Mm. I think it's important to name without shame or denial the fact that our motivations are generally mixed. And I remember our mutual friend Ortberg saying to me, I'm not really sure at what point in my heart I am no longer serving the church, but the church is serving me. 
And uh, I'm not sure I want to know. No, no. I just know that when I get up to preach a sermon or when I release a book or when I, that both of those motivational structures are in my heart. There is a part of me that genuinely wants to participate in the outflow of love from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit toward these people. I want to be caught up in it. I want to be used. Christians are the only people that ever say, I feel used and it's a good thing because we can feel used by God and, and feel it's an honor. Um, and there's a part of me that wants to sell a bunch of books or want people, want people to like mm-hmm. me or think I'm smart mm-hmm. or think I'm godlier than I am or all sorts of things. And... Um, I, I don't know what that breakdown is. I don't think I want to know, you know, what is it 50-50? Is it 80-20? Which way? I just know they're both there. And to ignore, you know, um, <laughs> who did I read recently who said, Freud was wrong about pretty much everything, but he was right in that whatever we refuse to acknowledge about ourselves grows in power. So it's the aspects of our shadow that we refuse to look at. We refuse to admit, we refuse to name, we refuse to repent of, or we refuse just to admit to God or to ourselves that actually are the the cause of so much of our self-defeating behavior, so much Mm -hmm. of our unloving behavior. And because we give it power. When we don't name something, you give it power. And when you name something, it doesn't fix it. Like to say this is a broken thing pattern that I have toward my wife or my children and it's rooted in this experience in my life or childhood. That doesn't fix it, Mm -hmm. but it sure like takes its power dramatically down. You know, self-awareness is not the whole journey, but it is a huge beginning step. Um, So I think naming that aspect of ourself is really key, just honestly. And then I don't, so really the question I think you're asking is mm. what a Christian psychologist would say is the question of attachments or in Calvinist reform language, the question of idols, mm-hmm. idols of the heart. Thomas Keating called them our emotional programs for happiness. So there's also, you can talk about it spiritually through the idol metaphor of Keller. You can talk about it psychologically through personality development. And there's a whole theory of psychology that basically says our personalities are developed as coping mechanisms for pain. Mm-hmm. And we all choose these different coping mechanisms that are all an attempt to basically run away mm-hmm. from pain. And those, we develop a strategy. Like, so for me as a, you know, perfectionist, somehow in my pre-conscious, you know, pre, uh, prefrontal cortex brain, my body, my personhood developed this strategy of I will make the world around, I mean, you're in my living room mm-hmm. and it's dirty. This is actually the end of the week, which is really dirty, but you don't see anything out of place other than you? these cameras. And mm-hmm. yeah, but this beauty is actually my psychosis. This is actually my brokenness. <laughs> yeah, it's like my lawn lines. It's, I'm insane. Yes, there you mm-hmm. go. So, somehow mm-hmm. I developed the strategy. I will make my environment perfect and that's how I will feel safe and okay. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really- actually a really defeating coping strategy for life because life is not perfect. And then when you have three teenagers, they're certainly not perfect. And a relaxed, happy, actually much more psychologically adjusted wife, she is not perfect either. And they leave stuff around and they're, and then I behave toward them in ways that are incredibly unloving. And um, I would be a much better dad if I was messy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, tidiness is not a virtue really, you know? So um, all that to say, we develop these coping strategies 
And I think naming them, seeing them is a huge step forward. But however, whatever these attachments are, where we develop these emotional attachments to our coping strategy of choice, which is just a way of saying we need this thing emotionally. It's an emotional reality. We need this marriage, success, book to sell many, so many copies, podcast to do, be what rated mm-hmm. is whatever number. Mm-hmm. We need this in order to be happy and at peace. And most of the things that we need as we you know, get farther down the spiritual journey are all good things. They're not bad things. They're good things. Very rare for them to be, as you mature, bad things. But our need for them causes us to behave. First off, it causes us to be miserable and it makes us just psych- just very unhelp- unhealthy and unhappy. And more importantly, it makes us behave in ways that are unloving. So hmm? Carrie, I wish I could tell you I wish I could preach a sermon on three ways to be free of your attachment. I know that we go to prayer and we hold our attachments before Jesus and we say, not my will, but your will be done. But in my experience, really the most powerful way to set the heart free from attachments is when our fears come true and we lose the very thing that we thought we needed. And then we realize we're still okay. So I don't, so most of the attachments that I've been freed of have not been through my godliness or my spiritual discipline regimen or some book I read. They've been through life or God or Satan or whatever, stripping away from me the very thing that I clung to and me realizing on the other side, oh, I'm okay. It's part of me stepping down from a pastor, from the pastorate. There is a painful stripping away of what I now realize was an attachment to I am a pastor of this kind of a church and this kind of a city and this kind of a role. And then once that's stripped away, who are you? And it is painful. It is excruciating. It is nerve wracking. You're pulsing with anxiety. And I'm not through it yet, but I can tell you now, I feel more free than I have ever felt in my life. And that does not mean I'm preach again. I start preaching again this Sunday. Um, that doesn't mean that the next four weeks as I preach that I'm going to just be pure love, just pure <laughs> altruism. I'm Preaching only here Sunday for too. But oh it God, does boy. mean that I think I'm more free than I've ever been. And I can still hopefully serve and do what I feel God made me to do. But um, the thought of never doing ministry again and just, I don't know, remodeling houses or something on the side and just reading books and loving Jesus for the rest of my life, I don't know how I would respond to that, but I can tell you that thought holds no fear for me. Mm. And I could not have said that to you a couple of years ago. Um, and that's not because I'm a good person. <laughs> it's because what I feared came to pass at some level and was stripped away. And it turns out that it was liberation. So, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because you and I have joked about how we're both neat freaks and, you know, mm-hmm. you talked about you're going to redo the whole house and everything yes. like that. I get that. I do that in my yard. My wife has great taste as well. And I've seen pictures of your yard. You have, you're a clean garage person. Clean garage. My dad like, literally said, people that have clean garages and no dogs are evil people. Thank you. And then that's mm, Satan. Me. <laughs> you know, no, I'll tell you, it's crazy. Like I, 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 and, and I, my family paid a price for that. Yeah. When, when the kids were younger, cause yeah. I wasn't nice if yes. stuff wasn't done. So right now it's fall at home. We're recording this months in advance. There are leaves all over the place. 10 years ago, that would have driven me crazy. Who can get to my house today? No, 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 I want it all clean. You know what? It's probably going to be chaos when I get home. 
I'm still going to make it neat. It'll stay neat for, I'm going to spend three hours on it. It'll be neat for two minutes for a quick picture. Then it's all going to fall down again. And God's like, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose. And I'm increasingly okay with it. But this is where I'm going with the question. You know, I was looking at practicing the way I was on your website. I was looking at your talks. I was reading your book. It's beautiful. Like your writing is so clear, so pure, so beautiful. I kept, I kept as I was reading through the book, the, the manuscript, I'm like, how do you go this deep and this comprehensible? Because I, I got to read an early copy. Mm. They were like, what was it like? What was it like? I'm like, you know what? You could hand this to someone in sixth grade. They'd be able to understand. I don't know whether they'd understand all the concepts, but like, you're not, you're not that super dense. Like it's so clean. It's beautifully designed. Your videos are that way. So it's one of those things that your obsession also gets leveraged as a gift yes. in places. Yes. That's, I think that's true for a lot of us, right? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you wrestle with that tension? Because if you just let it go and sloppy John Mark shows yeah. up, you know, and suddenly your videos are not nice quality and your writing is unedited and incomprehensible, that's not good either. So there's this, there's this tension, like part of that obsession on my part for cleanliness and everything when it's sanctified, I don't know whether it gets sanctified. I, that might be a bold claim, but but there are parts of that that has made me who I am and that God has used. And then there are parts of it where Satan's like, ah, field day, let's go to town. Yeah. What do you make of that? Because it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mixed bag, I think, for all of us. Mm. Yeah, I and mean, I think there's a generic answer and a specific answer mm. because that's a specific example yeah. of perfectionism. Well, we both, we both, I mean, your videos are much nicer than mine, but yeah. like, I mean, <laughs> and your writing is just like, as a writer, I'm like, ooh, so good. Oh, but I, I think kind. some of that is that obsessive tendency that you have. Yeah, it would be clinically diagnosable OCPD. So um, What's the P? Uh, so there's a difference between OCD uh-huh. and OCPD, which is obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Okay. Um, the way that was explained, I have the latter, um, have the latter. These are human constructs that sure. it's not like sure. you can test your blood and you have OCPD. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, I, be- I display behavioral characteristics <laughs> regularly that align with a category in the DSM called OCPD. The way my therapist explained it, he said, a person with genuine OCD, um, they're in college, they rewrite a paper nine times they're up through the night and they don't turn it in on time because they were so obsessive they couldn't get it right and so they fail the class or they fail or they get a bad grade. A person with OCPD rewrites it three, four, five times till two in the morning, falls asleep exhausted, gets an A plus, and then is just cranky and grouchy the rest of the day. And he told me, you've basically never met a surgeon, an airline pilot, or a highly skilled professional at a craft who doesn't have OCPD. Okay. okay. You know, and there's something about that drivenness. So the specific example, that's a specific example. And I think I'm still trying to figure out the answer to that. But I think it's learning to value goodness, not perfection, that there is such a thing as good enough, you know, Um one of the things I have long hated about preaching is it's a perfectionist nightmare because you just don't have the time to mm-hmm. craft. You know, if you're preaching, for me, it was 32 Sundays a year. You do not have the time that you have with a book or a magnum opus to put, like, you have two mornings a week, maybe, or something, you know, two days a week in my case. 
but I've actually now come to love it because there's a clear there's a clear sense it's in a way easier than a book because it's like hey this week I'm preaching Sunday I have Wednesday and Thursday till noon both days to and I've done some pre-work to write up this thing and that's all I have and if I get in a fight with my wife or one of my kids you know interrupts that time or I get sick or you know something goes wrong then I just throw myself on the grace of God as always, and I'll get up Sunday and I'll preach. You know, like you did the best with what you can. There's that saying in writing, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Mm -hmm. You're never done writing, you're just out of time. And that is such a true statement, especially (laughs) if you're a perfectionist. I never feel, people are like, do you feel like the book's ready? I'm like, no, never. I want to rewrite the whole thing right now. Um, But, uh, so that's a perfectionist example, learning to just value goodness and excellence and learning to do goodness out of love, not out of some anxiety coping mechanism. Obsession that this is, if this is perfect, I will be completed. Yes. For me, perfectionism is an anxiety coping mechanism, which goes back to deep, deep stuff in me. And so I think if I can get it perfect, then I will be safe and good and all that. But I think at a larger, more generic, that's that's just a good question because Mm -hmm. I think there's this pattern that often the very things that make us successful at work make us failures in what matters most. Right. So the things that can make us just highly, you know, accomplished or driven or whatever, often the things that make us successful at leadership that are often, the world will, the, the market economy, and this is not some political statement, will often reward bad behavior. Yes. Um, it will reward you killing we'll your soul. Boosted these or, results. Best yes, quarter ever. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, prioritizing your work over your marriage and your children. I mean, there's this conspiracy that a lot of us face when we hit middle age, um, where our careers, whatever you do for a living, whatever your gender is, what our careers are their most lucrative, most impactful at the very time where our children, in particular if you're a father and it's like just developmental psychology with kids, kids take more from a father as they get a little bit older. And that's not, I don't mean that's some patriarchal, that's just like the secular literature would say, teenage kids, younger kids primarily gravitate toward mom. And then as they get older, there's an emotional shift toward dad. And so um, in the same way that for many women, there's this huge drain on their career life when their kids are little. Fathers often face that when their kids get a little bit older. So there is not a day that goes by where I do not have to fight a civil war in my heart Will I prioritize my job Mm. or my children. And when I prioritize my job, I can make more money. I can get more accolades. I can, uh-huh. I can do something and feel like it went well. I almost never feel that way as a dad. Uh-huh. I feel like I worked so hard and at the end of the day, I just did these nine things wrong and lost my temper and I'm gonna have to apologize for this and I'm praying for my kid here. And um, so I think the general principle is often the things that make us successful at our work can, if we are left unchecked, be the very undoing of, you know, it's David Brooks' whole idea of resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And the things that people will talk about at my funeral, whether it's tomorrow or in 50 years, and the things that I want people to talk about at my funeral have almost nothing to do with the work meetings that I'm going into right after this and mm-hmm. the email and how this book mm-hmm. does. Nobody's going to talk about that. Nope. Nobody's going to care. No one's going to bring up the number of downloads on the podcast. I I had the chance to go. Mm -hmm. um, uh, We were family friends with the evangelist Luis Palau for pretty much my whole life. My dad was his worship leader. 
And, you know, especially in the Spanish speaking world, I mean, he is easily on par with Billy Graham. And he has preached the gospel to, I mean, I don't even know the number, millions upon millions upon millions. What a beautiful soul. I spent some time with him. Yes. So I had the chance, because we're family friends, to go to a small kind of family and friends funeral for him, not the big public memorial. And I was so struck. Here's this two-hour thing. You know, my dad led worship for it, and we were there, the plows, and their lovely family. Not a word was said about his ministry. Not a word about how many people he preached to, how many books he sold, how many people are in the kingdom of God. It was just all grandkids getting up, saying we went on vacation together as a family every year. And every, every morning of vacation at 6 a.m., you take a different grandkid out, including the ones that aren't Christians, and love on them and not judge them. And, and it was just all that stuff. It was all funny stories about him working out in the morning. And be, it was mostly about him being a dad and a grandfather. And he wasn't perfect, but he ended well. And I think that deeply imprinted on me. Like when my moment comes, nobody is going to care about the things that keep me up at night right now. And the things that matter most, I don't get paid for. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that is so true. So, you know, you mentioned a few people and I can't believe we haven't gotten to the book. So we're going to have to- No, we don't need to get to the book at all. People should read it. People should read it. Your podcast. And I'm just talking way too much. It's so good. So good. So, you know, you mentioned Eugene Peterson, who I had the privilege of interviewing. You mentioned uh, Richard Foster, who also came on the podcast. Wow. The thing that surprised me about Eugene Peterson and Richard Foster is they were both recovering driven people. Yes. But so are you. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. That, That was ruthless elimination of hurry. Lots of people, maybe millions of people have read it. But like, you're kind of like, hey, this is for me. Like, I'm very, very driven. To what extent is practicing the way, self-diagnosis, self-healing, self-like, I need to do some work in this area? You mean um, the book? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the philosophy. I think suffering, one of the most meaningful redemptions of suffering Hmm. is when your pain, in particular some of the unnecessary pain often brought about by our own bad decision-making, can be used to spare other people of their pain or help them in their pain. You know, so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who did the, you know, stages of grief, uh, I don't know if I can do it from memory, help me out here. It's denial, Uh, denial, anger, anger, bargaining. Uh, uh, Where does acceptance come? And then acceptance is number five. But, you know, her team came back a number of years later, and nobody quotes this because it didn't make it into the initial bestseller, and basically said, ah, we're missing a stage. There's a sixth stage, and it's meaning. Mm. So acceptance is actually not the end. It's not just I've accepted that my wife is chronically ill or that I was a failure here or that my children or whatever. It's not, that's not actually the end. The, the full, complete healing and development of that process is meaning. When you're suffering has meaning. And one of the, um, I think, best ways that happens that often we can't, we can't control, but we can certainly participate in, is when we partner with God to see our pain, our suffering, our failure, our lessons learned in hard knocks of life, um, used to help other people. 
And so I think a lot of what Practicing the Way is doing, um, no, I, I, I would not view this book as my, you know, self-therapeutic mm. outlet. It's not, I mean, maybe it is. I've not thought about it that way. I think I would need to go reflect on that and pray <laughs> about that. I'm sure there's always an aspect of that mm-hmm. in anything you write or preach or teach. But I think I want to give people the paradigm and the frameworks that I wish I had when I was coming up so driven and inside, uh, I don't even know the word evangelical means anymore, but inside a kind of traditional evangelical. You know, Ruth Barton had, has a line in one of her books where she writes, I had come to the end of what the traditional evangelical discipleship model had to offer me. And I think that's her way of saying I got through stage three. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, so what now? And um, I think... I would love for, this book's written for all ages, but I would be beautiful if a 25-year-old could read this book and could get to where I've got to just in, you know, realizing Jesus' invitation, you know, 10 or 15 years ahead of me and could um, maybe set some different metrics for success and could build a life architecture that is actually organized around formation, not around accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Not, and not that accomplishment is bad. I think we're made to do good works and meaningful work. I still work really hard. Um, but uh, I would like to think that my organizing center is, is very different now. I love the framework. Can you walk us through just the 30,000-foot view of sort of the practicing the way framework? Yeah, I mean, honestly, this book is just me. I'm a popularizer, and I without I would say that without shame. I feel like that's part of my role is I want to summarize and synthesize um, all that's out there. So there's this incredible body of learning uh, in the, broadly speaking, the spiritual formation world, which you know includes and touches on therapy, social sciences, neuroscience, body-based stuff, ancient Christian spirituality. And so I'm just trying to kind of summarize it and synthesize. I cannot even get readers to read Willard, you know, who's (laughs) very much my intellectual father. And if I was a Catholic, he would be my patron saint. And I I think he would be a saint if he was Catholic. And um, so I'm just wanting to write up that schema. And it comes through my own personality. There's a great, by the way, there's a great, um, it's a movie called Vengeance. Did you see that about the podcaster? I did. Is that uh, B.J. Novak? Yes. yes. Did you that's see it? That's a brilliant movie. Okay, brilliant. That's a brilliant movie. Podcaster that you are. Uh-huh. Great uh-huh. movie. It's, it's kind of an odd, I'm not endorsing the movie. It's that, really funny. So odd ending. Very funny. But okay, so best character in that movie was Ashton Kutcher's character. I forget his name. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away. He plays this like Texas movie producer mm-hmm. that you kind of hate. But then he has a couple moments where he just gives like a little... Not speech, but like monologue that is so profound. I mean, like yeah. so profound. And you're kind of expect him to be dumb or whatever, but he's so profound. And he has this one moment, I could not quote it verbatim, but when I, I have a doing a teaching on homiletics in a couple of weeks, and I will quote this verbatim. He basically says, he has this whole speech piece on creativity as listening and how your voice, what people call finding your voice, is when you listen deeply. And as you translate what you hear, that's your voice. Hmm. So I think I'm trying to listen deeply to some of these luminaries, ancient and modern, in particular to Willard, 
and translate it for millennials and Gen Z and people today and hope that it's not plagiarism. <laughs> that is my voice, you know. There's a lot of footnotes. There's yeah, a lot of footnotes. There's a lot. This is the first book I've ever been terrified of plagiarism for, not because I secretly cut, copy, pasted anything, but because I, like, at some, some of these books and some of these ideas are so deep in me, I'm not totally sure, like, where a phrase came from or idea mm-hmm. came from or, you know, it's just, it's deep, 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 deep in me. So I'm trying to translate all of that and um, hoping that, man, if people could get some of this paradigm in them before I, before I did, that would be awesome. So I'm basically just trying to channel some of the paradigm of discipleship to Jesus. And I'm intentionally not using the word disciple. I'm you know, opting for the word apprenticeship, partially because I think it's a better English translation of mathetes, the, the Greek word, and partially because I think, and I say this, Whenever you say with humility, that probably means you don't actually have humility. In my humble opinion. In my humble opinion means in my arrogant, dogmatic Mm -hmm. view. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around the word discipleship. Even the way that it's used as a verb by modern evangelicals mm-hmm. who are you yeah, discipling? Yeah, you make the argument you can't disciple somebody. Yeah, it's not, it's not a verb. Yes, I argue in a book on discipleship that you can't disciple somebody. <laughs> and um, and I think I argue well for that. I don't know, let readers be the judge. But just kind of this framework of an apprentice of Jesus, which I define as a life organized around three driving goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do as he did. Mm. And that's the kind of basic schema for the book. Yeah, and you know, it's so simple and and yet it's so beautiful. One of the arguments you make is that everyone is being spiritually formed. Yes. And I found that Core very, idea. very yes. compelling. Spiritual formation is not a Christian thing. So let's talk about that. What do you mean that everybody like atheists are being spiritually formed, deconstructionists are being spiritually formed, yes, um, new converts are being spiritually formed. It's not like, oh, I'm going to begin spiritual formation now, and today I start being formed. Mm-hmm. Take that thought down the road. Well, I think spiritual formation is just a quasi-biblical phrase for what happens to everybody. For just, it's the process. I'm not talking about spiritual formation in the way of Jesus. That's a different definition. Just spiritual formation. It's the process by which our spirit, meaning uh, our inner person, our inner woman or man, is formed into a particular shape or what we would call a character or a personality. It's inter- and that's, in, that's a whole Keller interesting aside, the shift from a character-based culture to a personality culture, from an obsession with virtue to an obsession with personality theories. Very interesting. That's a, whole, that's a, that's a rabbit hole. And uh, so, yes, that was, I think it was James K. Smith that first introduced me to this idea that spiritual formation is, is not optional. It happens mm-hmm. to all people. You have been formed since before you came out of your mother's womb. You were being spiritually formed when you were still in your mother's womb. Oh. You, you are being formed. You will be formed. Because complex factors within and without us, from our habits to what we watch on TV, to our family of origin, to what's happening in our mother's body when she was pregnant— all of these things form us. They have an effect on the development of our person, of our character, of our personality, of who we are, who we are not. So I occasionally hear people say like, I'm, I'm really getting into spiritual formation. And I never like judge them for that. But what they mean is like, I'm starting to read Willard or Foster, or I'm practicing silence or Sabbath, or I'm doing contemplative prayer, or I'm in therapy. Great, great, great things. But I just want to say like, listen, you've been into spiritual formation since before you were conscious, you know? 
And uh, I think I write in the book that Mother Teresa was the product of spiritual formation. Gandhi was the product of spiritual formation. Hitler was the product of spiritual formation. All of these people have been spiritually formed into a particular kind of person. And um, Christian spiritual formation or spiritual formation in the way of Jesus or what I would just call apprenticeship to Jesus is an intentional effort to partner with Jesus by adopting his lifestyle, not just his belief system, but his way of life and his truth of life in order to let him form us into a particular shape into people of Christ-like love. And, and, you know, one of the things you point out is we're not particularly known for our lovingness as Christians in this culture. <laughs> That's a big critique of discipleship in the church, right? When you look at it, it's by your fruit, fruit you'll know them. And it's like, eh, I don't know whether I like this fruit. In what ways, one, one of the distinctions you made, which Craig Rochelle's also made in his last book, but training versus trying. Yeah, that's a, found that very, very helpful. That's a Richard Foster thing. Yeah. Ah, okay. So let's talk about that. If that didn't that. come through, then maybe that was plagiarism. I don't well, know. No, no, but. no. I, I just thought that was really helpful. I mean, yes. there's nothing new under the sun. What else? But training versus trying, because I think about that. I've been working out pretty, not seriously, but four times a week for a year and a half. And I'm like, when I get discouraged, I think, okay, I'm training. I'm not trying. Yes. Training. I'll get 100 push-ups today. I'll get 90 or whatever, but I'm not trying. That, that's very, because, you know, I can get discouraged in my devotion. Sometimes it feels really yeah. quiet when I'm reading scripture. Sometimes when I'm praying, I'm distracted. You know, what was that quote about your mind is not a barrel of monkeys, but it's similar to that. Yes, yeah. and that, the noun quote is a monkeys in a banana tree. Yeah, monkeys know. in a banana yes. tree. Uh-huh. That's, that describes my prayer brain. Mm-hmm. So talk about the, the, the power of, of training. Not trying. Okay, so that's a Richard Foster line. You know, in 1978, he writes Celebration of Discipline, just about 45 minutes from where I've spent the last 20 years of ministry in Newburgh, Oregon, at George Fox University. And then he travels all over the country and the world for a couple of years. And he basically goes from just nobody's ever heard of him to widely known in the kind of, you know, 1980s evangelicalism. And he was deeply disheartened at the end of that this is my summary of things I've heard him say, um, by just the state of discipleship, the low um, kind of standard of spiritual maturity and transformation. And this is 40 years ago. That's normative. Yeah, absolutely. So we want to say a lot of things as the result of political polarization or the internet, but I mean, Robert Lovelace is writing about what he calls the sanctification gap in evangelicalism in 1978, way before post-Christianity, deconstructionism, digital stuff, scandals, like way before it, he's saying there's a major problem with evangelicalism with discipleship. And um, so same time, that's when, 1978, that's when he releases Celebration Discipline. So his conclusion after traveling all over is that most Christians think they change by trying, not by training. Now that will sound counterintuitive because it doesn't match the theological platitudes that we mouth a lot. So most evangelical Christians would have all sorts of Christianese, and that's, I don't mean, that's too cynical, would have all sorts of theological statements and beliefs about how salvation is God's work and it's God Mm -hmm. who does it. And they'd have cliches like let go and let God and all of that. But when it actually, if you were to actually follow people, if this is possible, it's impossible, thank God. If you could actually follow people's inner spirit around with a camera 24 hours a day, you would find that no matter how hardcore reformed Calvinistic sovereignty of God, it's all about God and his glory and it's not you at all. 
Um, no matter how far down that path they are, most people, if they're trying to overcome a sin um, or a bad self-destructive behavior or an unloving behavior, just grit their teeth and keep trying harder to stop. And rather than training. So uh, a key turning point for me was I'm pretty Anabaptist in my kind of theological view of things. And so Sermon on the Mount for me is like plays a disproportionate role in a center kind of of gravity. Really love the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, I'm really saddened by how many, uh, how many attempts there have been down through church history and in the world today to explain the Sermon on the Mount away. And there's multiple, there's at least a half a dozen different ways from Luther to all sorts of different people, dispensationalists yeah. who've tried to read it in such a way that, well, that's not really for, like Jesus is not expecting this you is to utopian. live this way. You're it's not utopian or it's to show you that you can mm. never measure up to the laws, different readings. I don't think so at all. I think mm. that's a gross misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount. I think it ignores the Beatitudes, which are all the gospel. I think the Sermon on the Mount is the vision of discipleship and it assumes wow. mess. Jesus assumes that you will want to divorce your wife and lust and objectify women in particular and members of the opposite sex and that you'll be anxious and that you'll worship money, not God, and that you'll have judgment and contempt for judgy. other people mm-hmm. and that you'll say mean things to people. He assumes all of this for disciples of Jesus. And at the same time, he calls us to this radically high bar. But what's often missed in the Sermon on the Mount is it begins and he ends with two statements about practice. That's where our language of practicing the way comes from. So in chapter five, at the beginning, right before his first of the 14 teachings that make up the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say to you, the first one's on anger and murder. You know, he has this beautiful line, whoever practices and teaches these things will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then the ending on this, of the Sermon on the Mount is something that no modern preacher would ever dare allow preached in his church because it does not end how a sermon is supposed to end. It ends the story that we grew up in Sunday. I grew up in Sunday school with of the two houses, the house built on sand, the house built on the rock. And it's, you know, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be called great. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice will be like the foolish person and built their house in the sand. Rains came, floods came, crashed, and it fell with a great crash. And that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Like, I was literally, I mean, I would have been rebuked for ending sermons with that way because it doesn't end with the assurance of like, but it's all going to be okay. all, Jesus done it all for you. Da, da. It's, what it's are a we haunting, it's a literary end. It's a haunting mm-hmm. warning. But I was so struck. He begins and he ends, he bookends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. And I interpret that to mean this beautiful vision of life that is not mm-hmm. utopian, it is completely grounded in the brokenness of the human condition. He assumes it will take practice, a lifetime of practice in community. The Sermon on the Mount is written to a community of people. It's written to disciples, plural, not singular. He assumes it will take a life of practice in community. So I think, and this analogy breaks down really fast, but like I used to run, you know, uh, my knees I'm having issues with. I used to do triathlon every summer and I do long form racing. So I just imagine... If you're, let's say, hypothetical scenario, you are wildly out of shape. Mm-hmm. You're overweight, or you never go beyond your computer and your Red Bull, and you're asthmatic, and you just decide one day, I want to run a marathon. How, how do you run a marathon? Do you walk outside, buy some running shoes off the internet, put them on, walk outside, and just try really hard to run 26.2 miles? Good luck. No. I mean, I don't care how hard you try or, or how good your genetics are, you cannot go out and run 26.2 months. You will 
die. Mm-hmm. You will collapse on the side of the road, leaking lung fluid, you know? <laughs> um, but it's not because it's impossible to run a marathon. It's because yeah. it's impossible for you now as you are. Right. So how do you run a marathon? You don't try really hard. You train really hard. Like I've done races before. You do, you start at one mile a day, you go run one mile and then you rest. And then, you know, the basic model is every week you add one mile on to your long run. So week two, your long run is two miles. Week three is three miles. Normally every three weeks you pause. So then you take a week off and then week five, I guess it would be is three miles again, Mm -hmm. then four, then five, then week off, then six, then seven, then eight, then week off, then eight, then nine, then 10. And over months and months and months of training, you become the kind of person for whom running 26.2 miles is hard. It will always be hard. A marathon is easy for no one, but it is within your capacity as a person. The problem is almost nobody approaches discipleship this way. So imagine if you were to approach lust or anxiety or greed. I will never lust again. Like the way- Good luck with that. Yeah, I'm gonna try really Mm -hmm. hard. I just heard a sermon on lust. I'm gonna work really hard to not look at porn this week. That is just a losing strategy because it's based on willpower. And you can use all sorts of theological language about how it's God and not you. But at the end of the day, you're really asking your willpower to do something that it's not strong enough to do. Now, this analogy breaks down because I don't think that spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation are just the spiritual equivalent of like, you know, fart lickers or whatever, like <laughs> running, you know, sprint marathon workouts or whatever, because these are not just habits. These are, these are habits that make space for the spirit of God. So this is where they're not less than habits. When people want to say the spiritual disciplines don't do anything, that's patently untrue. Everything we do does something to us. Mm-hmm. So if I watch TV, if I read poetry, if I go exercise, it's doing something. That, just that habit, good or bad, it's doing something to me. Prayer, Sabbath, scripture, community, uh, they do something to me. But they ultimately cannot transform me into a person of Christ-like character. They can, they can do good things to my nervous system. They can calm me down. They can make me more patient, more self-aware. But the deep transformation, all they can really do is put, is op- it's back to the, what I said earlier, opening up a deeper part of myself to grace, opening up a deeper layer of me to the power and the presence of God to do what no habit, no habit stacking, God bless James Clear, I love that book, mm-hmm. but none of that ever can do to actually transform me into a person of love. Last question for you. Yeah. You're uh, pulling yourself off the road. No more speaking. The road. I love that you made me sound like a rock star. <laughs> not a, the whole not a guest pastor. Being retired, right? <laughs> but you're uh, no more travel speaking, no more speaking. What's behind that decision? Um, yeah. Um, short version. I feel that's the right step for me. I have three teenage kids that I'm never going to get these next couple of years back. I have one more year with my oldest and four more years with our other two. I'm never going to get these years back. Um, But I also think in the digital age, uh, I don't think the digital age is all bad. I think it's mostly bad. But I think there's some really great things that we can utilize for it. And I don't think it's, I'm not personally a big believer in using the digital, digital technology for community. But I do think it's a good delivery vehicle for teaching and training and different, some early stage kind of knowledge based education. So we live in this beautiful world where I can live more deeply than ever and share more widely than ever. 
And so, um, you know, there's that old saying, my dad used to say this to me, you are responsible for the depth of your ministry. God is responsible for the breadth of your ministry. Mm. A little cheesy, but beautiful. Yeah. And um, so I think going forward, I would like to live a small, quiet life. I'd like to start a little community. We want to start like a monastic order, basically. I want to do life around tables. I have some serious stuff in my marriage, and not my marriage, in my husbanding, that I just need Jesus to heal. And um, I want to live smallly. I want to live locally. I want to live slowly. I want to live deeply. And then I can write books and I can preach some stuff and put it on the internet. If it's helpful to people, wonderful. And I'm not saying that all pastors mm. should do that. I'm just, I have no judgment at all of people that travel and speak. I'm just saying for me, I don't feel that's my primary call. And I think um, if I can live deeply, I mean, I think that's part of the pastoral call. Like we're all trying to figure out how do you follow Jesus in the digital age? I and mean, we're in LA. How do I follow Jesus and raise kids in a city this sexualized, this secular, this, you know, liberal, this lost, this pluralistic? Um, these are great questions to devote hmm. time and energy to. I love it. Well, look who's here. Look here, that non-perfectionist dog that we lost. Who's this? This is Jen Urso. Wow. Sorry, she just interrupted our podcast. All That's all right. As it's a, a good place to, long story uh, to wrap up. Yes. We were at time anyway. <laughs> the book is called Practicing the Way. I would encourage, it's going to be a reread for me. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful book. It's just beautifully put together, so clear. And it gave me hope. Gave me hope for the next 20 years. This is not as good as it gets. Yeah. And much more is possible. Any final word or thought or call to action for listeners? I just think of that line. It's not original to me. You must find the goodness of God in your actual life. Wherever you're at, whatever stage of the journey you're on, whether you're a pastor or not a pastor or used to be a pastor or not sure what a pastor is, may you find the goodness of God in your actual life. Mm. Thanks, John Mark. Thanks, Gary. Wow, that was a rich dive, wasn't it? I really enjoyed that conversation. I know that whenever we have John Mark on, it's uh, one of your favorite episodes as well. He's got a couple in the top 10 of all time on this podcast. So we've got show notes for you. You can get them at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 626. That includes transcripts. Plus we're on YouTube. We shot this at his home in LA. So if you want to check it out, I'm Kerry Newhoff on YouTube. Just a quick search inside YouTube and you'll find the channel. You can subscribe there. And if you enjoyed this, would you do me a favor? Would you stop listening right now and leave a rating and review or maybe text it to a friend? Because when you do those things, this show grows. And when it grows, we can bring you the very best guests and we get to keep doing this. And of course, we also get to keep doing this because of our partners. So make sure you check out Subsplash. You know, they want to help you make disciples digitally in a hybrid reality. You can join one of 16,000 churches by going to subsplash.com slash carry. You'll get a $500 credit when you sign up. And if you missed my Church Trends Guide, this is the last time we're talking about it on the podcast for 2024. I cover all of the church trends that we covered in the last five episodes and more. You can get the team guide for free by going to 2024churchtrends.com. That's 2024churchtrends.com. Well, if you want more discipleship, guess who's up next on the podcast? John Ortberg. Talk about rich conversations. So we have a fascinating conversation about breaking the divide between leadership 
and spiritual formation, why it's not true that if you're not a leader, you're a loser. We talk about John's childhood and some beliefs that got lodged early. Well, here's a sample of the delight that is John Ortberg coming up next on the podcast. Honestly, for the most part, I'm not drawn to books about leadership. I will often find if I'm talking with somebody, if they're involved in academics, uh, a theologian or philosopher or uh, psychologist, I will be very energized in that conversation. If somebody is involved in leadership, I value leadership a lot, but I don't have the same kind of resonance with it. I don't find myself drawn to those kind of books or talks as much. But it was a long journey for me to come to grips with that. And it was very, very painful. And for a long time, I just uh, needed to think of myself as an effective, confident leader. Because the only alternative category to that for me was loser. So that's next time. Again, if you subscribe, maybe you're brand new to the podcast. Well, you'll never miss an episode. Also coming up, Kara Powell, Todd Bolsinger. Long overdue conversation there. Jamie Kern Lima, Craig Grishelle. Jenny Allen, and a whole lot more. And thank you so much for doing this. Man, I do not take this for granted. This is a privilege to do it with you. I love hearing from you. If you've got feedback or questions, drop me a line at carrie at carrienewhoff.com. Or if you post it on social and tag me, I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, for example. Uh, we'll often repost it and I interact in the DMs there as well. So if you enjoyed this episode, I've got other podcasts on the Art of Leadership Network. You'll hear from leaders like Adam Weber, Chris Cook, Jenny Katrin, Tony Newhoff, Rob Meter, and a lot more. Also, Brad Lominick. All you have to do is follow the Art of Leadership Network on Instagram, and then we post the shows there, and you can follow through, and away you go. So that's the Art of Leadership Network on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and uh, what a delight it is to be with you today. I don't take your time lightly. I know it's free, but you invest with your time. And as a result, I hope this conversation helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing 